0: Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Edo Bannock. He's the new visionary and CEO for NHPCO, better known as National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. I really do appreciate you joining us today. It's really nice to finally talk to you and hopefully one day meet you face to face, but it's nice to talk to you.
1: Yeah, no, uh, you too, and I look forward to it.
0: Tell me before we get started in helping people understand this, you know, acronym of NHPCO. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became? Um, the president of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Association?
1: Happy to do it. How far back do you want me to go?
0: (laughs) Um, How about just uh, maybe, because I know in your background, you have some Medicare experience. So maybe just a a high level overview.
1: So really, my my first job uh, was working for the Medicare Rights Center. And so after I, I went to law school, was trained as a Lawyer, clerk for a judge, got into healthcare and had the opportunity to work with the Medicare Rights Center um, uh, right before and then right during uh, the Part D um, uh, transition. So that was that was my first job, and I spent a couple of years there. Um, and after that, I moved to a place called the Visiting Nurse Service of New York, which is a pretty large home care um, a, a agency, also a hospice, and also a managed care entity, sort of an integrated. Uh, entity up in, in New York City and spent uh, about four years there. And when the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010, loaded the family up in our uh, Subaru Outback, drove down 95 and uh, offered my services. I was lucky enough to work at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services on in a new office that was created by that law called the Medicare and Medicaid Coordination Office, the Duals Office, and and spent about five years there really trying to tie together uh, Medicare and Medicaid for the about 10 million people who have both programs. Uh, and then after that, uh, left, uh, spent a year at a law firm where I thought I'd be. And uh, this opportunity arose and now here I am.
0: So you're you're not a, a stranger to the end of life uh, services or industry, are you? No,
1: I'm not. And in fact, you know, I, I didn't realize that, you know, as I was working on these issues at the Medicare Rights Center, or, uh, you know, chairing the hospice ethics committee, or really working on palliative care when I was at CMS, that I'd be doing what I'm doing now. But I'm glad I did all those things.
0: There's a lot of people outside of the hospice industry that does not know what NHPCO is. And so help us understand what, what is your organization and what does it do?
1: We're we're really a big tent organization that binds together all of the providers who provide uh, hospice uh, services, that is the Medicare Hospice Benefit, um, uh, and also palliative care services outside of that benefit. Uh, We have thousands of members across the country who are caring for people who are uh, progressing through their their illness all the way up to um, uh, death. And it's an it's an organization that arose even before there was a Medicare hospice benefit uh, when this was a a concept, then a demonstration, then an actual benefit in the early 80s. Uh, But what we all come back to is that we want to create the best possible kind of interdisciplinary uh, person-centered care model that we can uh, for people. And so for me, it really comes back to the people that are getting the service, the families that that support them, uh, the caregivers, the communities, um, and uh, and the fact that we represent organizations is uh, is actually secondary to the people that are getting the care.
0: Oh, wow! Tell me, what interested you in becoming the president of NHPCO, what, what do you feel like you're bringing to the organization that really, I mean, you're our first lawyer being the president of NHPCO. So what intrigued you about this job?
1: Yeah, I know it's interesting because, um, you know, it's obviously not something that, that I, that I would have dreamt up and it's not something that, that, that I was pursuing. But I think it's something that, you know, as I thought about it, uh, made a lot of sense in terms of what I've done in the past and what I thought I could bring to this to this job. I'm not a typical lawyer in the sense that you're not going to hire me uh, certainly for anything now, but, but you're not going to hire me to uh, to do contracts or to litigate a case. You're going to hire me to get something done through whatever means uh, it needs to get done. And I spent a lot of my, my professional career working on regulatory and legislative matters uh, and, and, and trying really to solve a problem. So how is it that we want to get more of this kind of care to more, more folks? Um, how, do we, how do we get that done? How do we build alliances? How do we uh, have unusual um, alliances between different folks who disagree about everything except for this? Um, I spent a lot of my career trying to figure out how to, how to get something done, not for uh, my pocketbook or anyone else's, but really for, for individuals who need get, uh, better care. And so when you think about hospice, um, it, in a way it sold itself short. Um, it's, it's a benefit that uh, is a wonderful end-of-life benefit, uh, but if you take one step back from that, it is really the only Medicare benefit that exists that is uh, interdisciplinary now, uh, that is person centered now, that provides care not only for uh, the individual getting the care, but also for their family uh, now. That uh, it provides care also to the community in terms of grief counseling, and I'll talk more about that. Um, and it provides spiritual care, it provides music therapy, it provides all these things that are really considered ancillary by the rest of the Medicare system, although it's trying to catch up, which is why I keep on saying now. Um, that I think it's a wonderful model. Uh, for how we might want to provide care to folks much earlier uh, than at the end of life,
0: and that's what hospices and palliative care have been facing is, you know, this what people call in the industry short length of stay, and you know, even an article came out recently that hospices are having problem with even managing pain because they're coming so late. Um, and and so what intrigued me as I was doing a little research was I read your keynote. At the NHPCO's Management and Leadership Conference last year, um, and you compared the hospice industries to a Disney film, and I was, I was so I was so intrigued by the comparison, and I would love for you to share that um, with our listeners today.
1: Yeah, well, I would love to. You know, I was sitting on the couch one night with uh, I have a six-year-old daughter, uh, and then uh, now uh, then eight-year-old, now nine-year-old uh, boy, and we were watching Moana. And, uh, you know, I, of course, as I'm sitting down, I'm always um, I've got one eye and one ear on on uh, Moana and what I'm doing. And of course, I'm thinking about work, work as well. Unfortunately, that's, you have to do that. And and it just occurred to me in that movie for folks who don't who, who don't have a six and eight year old. There's this there's this um, conundrum. Uh, so you have the, the typical sort of Disney princess here, but uh, not a typical Disney princess in that, uh, she, she's, uh, the, this, um, uh, powerful, uh, much like in brave to cite another, um, Disney film, this powerful um, uh, woman, growing girl who's becoming a woman who really wants to, uh, get out from under her, uh, father's, uh, uh, control and thumb. And she is the heir leader, a parent of this, of this Polynesian, um, Island. And, uh, you know, she keeps on wanting to go beyond the reef, beyond this, uh, the, the, the protective reef that really protects this, this Polynesian nation. And her father keeps on saying, no, we have everything we, we want and need here. We've got all the coconuts we would ever want. We've got all the other things we'd ever want. We've got she's got a pet chicken and everything is just fine. And, you know, it struck me that this was a pretty good parallel for hospice. If you if you stop right there, we got everything we need. We've got hospice. We've got this wonderful end of life benefit. We've got we've got Medicare. Everything's just fine. But looming is 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 a risk. And the risk is that one day our coconuts won't be there anymore. Uh, And in fact, in the film, what happens is that the coconuts begin to dry out. uh, All of the things that they consider to be plentiful don't exist anymore anymore. And Moana really felt compelled to sort of move beyond this, this, this reef, reef um, uh, and is actually sort of given permission to do it. Um, and when she does it, um, she has a lot of uh, challenges and successes and adventures, and that's a big part of the movie. But the key thing that I wanted to bring this back to is it comes out that there's this whole secret chamber in the island full of these boats – so her ancestors were these great voyagers, and the parallel I'm trying to draw to Hospice is that. And by the way, she uses those boats to get to get past the reef. My message at MLC was: you, you often think about um, innovation as if it's something that is uh, foisted upon you, or brought to you by a messiah. Um, and I wanted to, to let people understand: I'm not the messiah, right? I my job is to unlock. Uh, What's already inside of you? And so if you think about the folks who took Dame Cicely Saunders's concept made it a reality in the United States got there to be a Medicare demonstration in 1978 got that demonstration to be a permanent part of the Medicare program a couple years later that's Getting beyond the reef. Those are the ancestors that we have to look back to in the way that they got that to happen And if you look at 1982 just as hospice was was getting off the ground, you had the HIV and AIDS crisis, and hospice, which was sort of a more of a cancer benefit, was adapting almost as it started to uh, to to a brand new disease and providing um, a massive amount of uh, of care in a very different way for that for that population. And so the the the, um, the tie back to Moana is that the 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 ability to sort of get beyond the reef is something uh, that's that's in me and that's something that um, uh, requires looking forward as much as it requires learning from uh, what we did going back. And that combination, uh, a a spirit of looking forward plus learning from uh, our ancestors, many of whom uh, still work with us here, uh, that's what's going to get us uh, uh, to be successful.
0: Now, do you think people... um like hospices across, especially in the United States, because I know there's a huge hospice movement in the UK and Australia, but, you know, in the United States, I mean, do you feel that we're not looking beyond the reef and you feel like you're trying to encourage us to look at this innovation and how we can look at death and dying differently? I think a little
1: bit, you know, because what I've seen is that folks have gotten a little bit stuck in the model that we've developed and successfully developed and almost haven't, um, given themselves enough credit for being able to solve many of the uh, society's problems that we see now. So having accomplished this wonderful thing, which in Moana was this wonderful Polynesian Island with many coconuts, we've sort of stopped there and said, okay, we're, we're done. And I think that, that the, 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 the the wisdom of hospice uh, is that you don't sort of foist care upon people. You make them a part of the care team. Uh, the people's needs are not just uh, – uh, clinical and medical, they're, they're social as well, uh, that an interdisciplinary team does a better job than just one uh, individual. If you think about those things and you apply them to many of the things that our nation is struggling with today, be it an opioid crisis, public health crises, uh, uh, behavioral health issues, post-traumatic stress, there's things that this concept could actually help uh, heal, um, and we, t- we often talk about it in terms of moving upstream. But that's what we mean. There are a lot of people struggling with a lot of things that the concept that we've developed could actually help um, greatly with. We don't want to abandon hospice, obviously. And we want to strengthen it and make sure that at the end of life, uh, for much longer than a couple weeks, people have access to hospice. But I think we can do much more than that. And it's my job to get people to sort of look beyond um, just what we're doing now, beyond the reef um, and be successful, uh, caring for people, uh, much sooner. Um, and it's not just because, um, hospice uh, wants it. It's because people want, uh, really whether they know it or not. And it's our job to help people understand, uh, what, what we provide, uh, when people find, when people find hospice often too late, their reaction is, I wish I would have known about this sooner. Um, So I want to bring it to them
0: sooner. So in your opinion, what is the state of hospice and palliative care in the United States?
1: I think the state is actually good. If you think about it from from one perspective, the the, uh, uh, utilization of hospice is is increasing. More people are availing themselves of the kind of care that we provide. Uh, And so on that level, uh, the state of hospice and palliative care is good. Uh, But that doesn't mean that we want to sort of double down and say our work is done. Um, my job, our job is to improve the state and make sure that we can get care to many more people earlier uh, and better.
0: So Dame Cicely Saunders, the founder of the modern day hospice, you know, she created this movement to live outside of the medical model. Um, She wanted to care for individuals that were a probably not being included in the medical model, um, but wanted a different kind of death. And due to the reimbursement in the United States with Medicare, which is a way we can fund this, which is not a bad thing. And that's not what I'm hinting about, but how can we balance, you know, serving people under a very sort of strict um, benefit Um, because this benefit has not changed that much.
1: Yeah. Well, I I think that last part is where I want to start. So uh, part of the reason why hospice hasn't changed that much is actually because of the hospice industry. We have, if, if you want to think about hospice as, as a child, we've nurtured it, uh, we've brought it up, we've protected it, um, and we've gotten the hospice benefit to be where it is now, which is stable and robust and, and, and wonderful. Uh, but, uh, but what we see, and you know, my experience at CMS has, has taught me, is that it's not uh, the case that the bureaucracy is necessarily closed off to new ideas and innovations and how we can change it. Um, and if we own that, uh, then I think we can actually make some changes that um, have some risk. You know, we're giving up a little bit of the, uh, of the um, defensiveness that we've had, but a lot of reward because we can care for many more people uh, much earlier. And um, this box, this hospice box, well, I, I describe it as becoming a rectangle because as, as we think about hospice 2.0 and, and, and the, uh, the creation of an actual palliative care benefit, We have an opportunity to provide it um, earlier in a more flexible way. And part of that requires hospice becoming more flexible. And part of that actually requires Medicare to become more flexible. So Medicare itself um, is currently wrestling with, do we provide supports and services to folks that are non-medical? If so, how do we do it? And that's a very good thing that's happening really at the same time as hospice is looking at. Uh, what what it's going to be in the future because i would argue that we're really well positioned to help uh, medicare uh, think about some of those some of those challenges that it has where it, it turns out that in the last couple of years of an individual's disease progression they have many social needs uh, they have many uh, other needs that are not purely medical and i think this is one example of how it's actually done right now
0: well in over the last few years of of me being a part of a hospice organization, I've just noticed the oversight, the scrutiny, and the increasing compliance demands that are being made on hospice organizations. I mean, it, it's why is this increased, and, and why do why do you think this is happening?
1: Well, I think it's happening for a couple of reasons. One is hospice is becoming bigger, and as you become bigger, the scrutiny—it's just the, the pure economics as that as, as you become bigger. The scrutiny that uh, that the bureaucracy um, has uh, it, it increases. So that's 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 just the way it goes. The other is that we've had some bad actors um, in this industry, and frankly, I have zero patience and tolerance for bad actors. And if they're uh, they're defrauding Medicare, they should be out of business. Um, but the third part of that is the structure of the Medicare hospice benefit itself. And if you think about it, it's almost set up to have these differences of opinion that manifest themselves in compliance actions. So if I think that something's medically necessary and you as Medicare or Medicare as contractor think that it isn't, we're going to have an argument uh, that that takes that takes place about whether or not this was appropriate to bill Medicare for this. Um, and uh, and I think a lot of what's going on now is uh, so does a second guessing of hospice providers when it comes to their. Uh, well, uh, well-founded uh, uh, medical clinical determinations. So, I really want to differentiate. I think it's important for us to help CMS differentiate the um, differences of opinion uh, versus outright fraud. Outright fraud, out- absolutely bad. Those folks should be out of the business. Uh, differences of opinion, or even mistakes. Uh, I think these are things that we need to we need to think carefully about. Uh, because what we don't want to do, and this is you know, my concern and I think it's happening, is uh, to see hospices practicing defensive medicine almost and not providing uh, care that actually is appropriate because they fear the implications of, uh, of a compliance action. And I've been on the other side of that. I've been the lawyer telling um, the hospice professionals to back off. And I want to empower the hospice professionals against that lawyer and push back and say, no, Mrs. Smith really needs this care. Unfortunately, we're in an environment right now where that's difficult to do.
0: Absolutely. And it really comes down to really documentation on a, you know, that timely and almost proving your case. And, you know, don't we're at, Those people in hospice, they're human, they're up against productivity, they're, they're similar in a lot of ways to conforming to a medical model. Um, but it's also this, like you said, it's it's kind of defending um, your admission instead of being kind of proactive and, and looking at the long range of it. And, and hospice has grown in the last, gosh, 20 years. And it, people finally are getting to know what hospice is and the benefits that it can help individuals at end of life. And I truly, truly believe in hospice, but it concerns me that me who wants hospice, me who hopefully deserves hospice under the Medicare benefit, if it doesn't change, I might not qualify. Um, and that's where me and I believe you, how do we get individuals who are facing a chronic illness um, and this benefit to change to fit the population that we're serving? And I'm really happy to hear that you and the focus of NHPCO is, is trying to evolve that and enhance that benefit to, to better understand both parties. Because you're right. No one needs to be fraught. Um, if they're misusing Medicare dollars, then absolutely you need to be gone. But I know that I would say a good large portion of these hospice organizations are doing the best they can and being scrutinized. And we're not taking care of widgets. We're taking care of human beings. And I'm really happy to hear that you are fighting to have some flexibility in there. Absolutely. You got it. So do you think the Medicare benefit, you absolutely think it needs to be involved, evolved and less restrictive, correct?
1: Yeah. No, I think two things. One is the hospice benefit needs to evolve and be less restrictive. And I think we also need a, uh, uh, a an actual palliative care benefit to uh, predate it uh, with consumer protections and and with a lot of the interdisciplinary and patient-centered and family-provided uh, care that we've been talking about uh, as well. So I think both of those things uh, need to happen. And and I also think that hospice needs to do a better job of tying into some of the innovations that we see in the rest of the healthcare systems. Uh, and that's not only hospice's responsibility, it's also CMS's responsibility and those systems, whether it's managed care or it's ACOs or anything else, um, um, you know, for better or worse, uh, the ties between um, uh Hospice and those other systems is going to have to be. uh, We're going to have to tie those ties a little better.
0: Well, when you're when you're talking about including a palliative care benefit, are you talking about creating an end of life or separate palliative care and hospice benefit? What do you see which would benefit both?
1: I think there are there are various ways to do it. I don't know that the that we need to to have it be an end of life palliative care benefit. What I'm thinking is, and and obviously this is something that we're working on uh, here, um, as your disease gets more progressive, as your needs uh, get uh, more acute, uh, and this may depend on whether you're struggling with dementia or you're struggling with cancer or something else, you would receive more supports and services from Medicare. uh, And you would receive perhaps – um, information about how to get uh, more interdisciplinary care, how to get music therapy, how to get um, uh, spiritual care, um, how to get some of the things, again, that the Medicare system considers to be ancillary in that they're not medical. Uh, and, then, and that as you become uh, and progress, uh, the, um, the ability to get those services would increase all the way up to what we know as the hospice benefit now. So this would be a pre-hospice hospice like benefit.
0: Oh, wow. That's exciting. Yeah. Recently, I've heard uh, there's some palliative care programs and practices moving away from right now palliative care's fee for service or a uh, small billing under uh, the Medicare benefit, but they're looking at more of a new model called that is like based on value. Are they new payment models being discussed to enhance palliative care? Is it more value versus fee-for-service? Or how do you feel about that? Because fee-for-service is almost private pay, correct?
1: Well, you know, let, you know let's take a step back. I think that there are, you know, there are a number of different innovations that are, that are being considered by, by CMS right now. And then there are separately a lot of, in the marketplace, a lot of different uh, palliative care models that are being rolled out. But most of the time when we use the term palliative care, we don't mean um, the kind of palliative care sort of codes that physicians are uh, are are being paid to uh, uh, to to provide. Uh, we're not talking about inpatient uh, palliative care services uh, in a hospital. Uh, we're talking about community-based palliative care, and that is not something that is a uh, a well-defined Medicare-covered benefit. Uh, and so right now, if um, Tony's pizza and palliative care service um, I can provide palliative care uh, in a given state, and, and I can and I can possibly um, get paid to provide that palliative care service um, under contract with someone. Um, that's not good uh, because that that means that uh, that this is sort of an unregulated space. And and again, going back to the focus on consumers, we need to make sure that every time that someone gets something called palliative care, it's of high quality and that it's consistent. So um, a lot of the models that are being talked about right now uh, are just that models that are being talked about. But I want to I want to clarify that there isn't a clear uh, community-based palliative care benefit within within Medicare. Um, you know, that said, I think any palliative care service that's that's being provided will will by definition be um, if it's being if it's being rolled out and it's new will by definition be more value-based and less fee-for-service, because that is the direction of uh, of Medicare generally. It is not coming up with any new fee-for-service models, but rather uh, value-based. What is, what is the value of the service that we're providing, rather than sort of blindly providing units of care? And that works in our favor. If you think about it, the kind of care that we provide in hospice, and could provide even outside of hospice, uh, will, uh, will reduce... Uh, rehospitalizations will will increase uh, an individual's uh, an individual's uh, quality of life and ability to thrive uh, uh, in the community. Um, and I would put it up against anything else that's that's being discussed right now as a care model in terms of its ability to increase quality and drive down
0: costs. I definitely appreciate you clarifying that because you were, we are talking acute palliative care in a hospital setting is totally different than a palliative care in the community. And so that, that's a very great point. So tell me, what effect do you feel like the baby boomers are going to have on palliative care and hospice? Cuz they're they're changing some of the things that are happening right now at end of life with this movement of the medical aid in dying. So what in your opinion do you think is going to evolve as we start take care taking care of these people coming on to the Medicare benefit like 10,000 a day?
1: Right. I mean I think one one thing that's that's clear is that uh, folks who are coming onto Medicare now are much more used to uh, alternative payment models. I mean, they've lived under under private insurance uh, most of their adult lives, um, so that you know that is one thing. Two, I think like like most of um, like most of society, these folks are more used to getting care in the community uh, and tend to prefer getting care in the community. Uh, three, they tend to be more tech savvy. Uh, certainly, their children are even more tech savvy, but they tend to be more tech savvy than their predecessors and more comfortable with a certain level of you know they've used their cable TV remote before, at least, uh, and probably their cell phone. So more more innovations when it comes to telemonitoring, telehealth, and 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 the like. Um, and and, uh, and then you know you know one one other thing I want to say about about the baby boomers, and this is sort of goes to my we can do more uh, point. I think we have a, a a group of folks who have been through a particularly rough time over the last i um, um, 20 years. That's manifested itself in some of the crises that we're seeing right now. Some of the election patterns that we're seeing right now. You know, if you look at uh, the rates of depression, if you look at rates of suicide, violence is up. Um, uh, uh, opioid uh, addictions are up. And some of these are amongst, you know, the 55 to 65 year old folks who are. Either coming onto Medicare or getting ready to come onto Medicare. So I think we're really going to have to look closely at the behavioral health and substance abuse and some of the other um, uh, features that that Medicare is really lacking.
0: Where do you see the end of life services industry in the next thirty five years? So I'm asking you to shake the number eight ball <laughs> and and come up with, hey, we've come so far in the last thirty eight years with palliative and hospice care. I mean, where do you see it going? Yeah, in
1: my opinion, and this really goes to, you know, at, at that same talk where I talked about Moana, I also talked about Dame Cecily Saunders and what she would do if she were around today. What kind of benefit would she would she come up with and how and how would it evolve? And I think that it would likely be a very different benefit than the one that she came up with 50 years ago and I think one that that has the capacity to be to be enduring. One, one thing that I'm pretty clear about is that hospice is going to go through a couple more evolutions in the next 35 years. So if I were to say, I'm going to shake a crystal ball and tell you where we're going to be in 35 years, um, the only thing I know we need to do between now and 35 years from now is be open to being a, a model of care that continues to evolve to meet the needs of, of our population. So that's one, one thing that I'd say. The other thing I'd say is, we won't be tied to six months um, as as the metric for whether or not you qualify for hospice. I think that that, if you think about it, that is a uh, a budgetary uh, gimmick that was backed into when hospice was created, and really bears no clinical uh, uh, relation to anything. Uh, and so I, I think that that is going to be uh, that is going to evolve. Um, I think the idea that you have to give up. Uh, any curative care in order to get palliative care, uh, I think, and hope that that's something that will evolve. Uh, and I think in time we'll see a much more evolutionary. If you think about evolution, we'll see evolution in the benefit itself. Where again, I think you'll get some palliative services, some services and supports much earlier, and many more as you re- as you near the actual end of life. So I'm hoping that we'll we'll create a glide path that goes from. Medicare as we know it to, to hospice as we know it. And in between, and this is the, the beauty, in between, I hope that Medicare will become a lot more like hospice than, than the other.
0: Oh, wow. That's that's really exciting. I hope
1: so. I'm excited about it.
0: Just being a, a non-clinical person and a community member now outside of the medical uh, just environment on a daily basis, Any. Any wisdom that you would give community members listening of how we could better educate ourselves of end-of-life services to be more aware before we even get that serious Ill- illness diagnosis or become sick? Any recommendations by you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one one thing that's clear is that we we need, we all, anyone who's listening to this who does not have an advanced directive uh, should execute one uh, and should really make sure that they uh, indicate what their wishes are. Uh, what happens all too often is those decisions get made too late, uh, and they get made as, as there is a moment of crisis. And so the best thing that folks can do is really have, a, whatever wherever you are on the political sex spectrum and wherever you live, uh, you have wishes, you have, you have desires, and, and you should make sure that your loved ones uh, know those wishes and desires. That is crucial. Um, the other thing I think is take a step back from thinking about what we're talking about as as, as death uh, care, it's really how do you want to live your life for as long as you have it and it, it could be look at Tom Petty, look it could be tomorrow um, and we all need to um, uh, care for each other, uh, make sure that we know um, uh, um, what our wishes are and articulate that to, to other folks um, and then you know try to Depoliticize this whole this whole debate that I think has unfortunately gotten way too political. Um, it is it is it is a very important place where where in this crazy world we actually get to care for each other. We get to uh, let people know what we want. Uh, we get to step up if we're volunteers and really provide uh, care for folks, uh, even folks that we don't know, in moments of crises. Um, And it's a beautiful thing that that I really want to celebrate and
0: grow. I think you bring up a very good point because it is about life and how you live. I can't tell you how excited I am that you are sitting behind the desk. I love your analogy of looking and respecting the history of hospice and palliative care, but also not burying our heads in the sand, but looking at innovative ways that we can continue to evolve palliative and hospice care. Um, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. I, th- I think that um, it's going to be in a very exciting time for the future of hospice and palliative care. And I'm really proud that NHPCO chose someone like you to lead the way.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm really excited and honored. And I'm literally standing behind my desk. And that, uh, we'll use that as a metaphor. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, uh, uh, to what's ahead.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. And have a great day.
1: Thank you. You too.
0: Thanks for joining us today, and remember, you're the designer.